0: So looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 13. It says this, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the land of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have on us, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to lebo Hamath to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Balaam, that is to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Amminadab and Uzzah and Amhioh, were driving the cart. and David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might with psalms and lyres and harps, tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Shidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Peres, Uzzah, to this day. David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the Ark of God home to me? So David did not take the Ark of God home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, Gittah. And the Ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Well, I really love the way that the Cambridge Dictionary defines enthusiasm, that... Dictionary defines enthusiasm this way, a feeling of energetic interest in a particular subject or activity and an eagerness to be involved in it. A feeling of energetic interest in a particular subject or activity and an eagerness to be involved in it. So when I think about um, enthusiasm, I think about the Buffalo Bills and Bills fans. The Bills have a big game today and I think about Buffalo as a whole, not everyone fan, there's many people who aren't, but there are also a lot of people who are. Buffalo's kind of a a Bills city, and we're kind of enthusiastic about the Buffalo Bills. For example, a few weeks ago, for the opening uh, game of the the season, um, it was estimated that 32% of the fans in attendance at uh, the game in Los Angeles were Bills fans. 32% of the fans. That's a long haul over to Los Angeles to go to a Bills game. But that's how enthusiastic Bills fans are about the Bills. And then you have a lot of like super fans. People who are just crazy about the Bills. Um, you have people uh, like Pancho uh, Bila who passed away a couple of years ago and he would go to every game and he was dressed in, in a suit like a, a poncho, and a mask and he just went all out for the Bills. Um, you have Buffalo Elvis, this guy who dresses up as Elvis, goes to every game, uh, brings a guitar and has it all painted in Bill's in bills attire. Um, you have someone like um, Pinto Ron, um, this guy goes to Bill's game, he went to every game, home and away, including the game in London, from 1994 to 2020, every single game. And he did all kinds of crazy things, like he would make food in a helmet, like a football helmet, and with a shovel, and he would serve drinks in bowling balls. He would just do all kinds of crazy things. They're super fans, people who are just fanatical about the Bills. Um, a few years ago, there was a couple who actually got married at a Bills game in front of 70,000 people. Uh, they won a contest, um, so I called the Dream Um Experience of a lifetime, halftime wedding. Experience of a lifetime, and they made NFL history participating in the NFL's first halftime <laughs> wedding. Not even as extreme as the next couple, a couple from Baldwinsville. Um, they're uh, Brittany Shoe and Brittany and Warner Shoe, and they named all of their children after Bills players. Um, their first child was named. Um, Helen after Jim Kelly, their daughter was named Marley James after Jim Kelly, and their final child, the son, was named Kingston Allen, also to be known as King Allen, his (laughs) dad (laughs) said. Bills fans are pretty enthusiastic about the Bills, and and that's great to be supportive of of, the team uh, and City's team, but today I'd like to kind of consider the question, how enthusiastic are we about our friends? How how enthusiastic are are we about the things that really matter? I mean, it's great to to cheer on the Bills, and I love watching the Bills, but how enthusiastic are we about the things of God? And as we look at this passage, I think we see kind of three different responses to God and and three kind of responses to faith. Uh, We see the first response is a lack of enthusiasm. And this is the response of King Saul, in this passage. Now, the topic of this passage is the Ark of the Covenant, and if you're not familiar with what the Ark of the Covenant was, the Ark of the Covenant was basically um, this box, and God gave really specific directions of, of how this was to be created, and it kind of housed some of Israel's artifacts or kind of sacred items. And uh, this was the place where God chose to meet with his people. Uh, God, in a sense, dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. It's not that it contained God. Um, But it was the place where God chose to meet with His people in the Ark of the Covenant. Now it says in the text something pretty remarkable. Uh, David tells the people, he says, Then let us bring the Ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So the people of Israel under King Saul didn't seek the Ark of the Covenant. And in essence, what that meant was they didn't seek the presence of God. And so the Ark of the Covenant was kept in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And uh, I imagine it kind of being kind of like hidden in an attic somewhere. Now, of course, they didn't have attics back then, but it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So Saul sends it. It's a curious dream. He doesn't have anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant for for the most part. And uh, it's just kind of, he doesn't seek the presence of God. So David says he's going to come and he's going to bring this to to Jerusalem and he's going to put it of an emphasis on seeking the presence of God. Now, you think about this, and think about the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a lot of difference between the Ark of the Covenant and the Bible. Of course, uh, God's presence isn't, isn't housed in the Bible. He doesn't meet with us in, in the same sense in the Bible. But it, it kind of, to me, it, it's kind of like if you have your Bible and it's kind of like on the top shelf of your bookshelf, and it's there, and it's, it's not you you disagree with it, but you just kind of never reference it. It just kind of gets dusty. That's kind of what, like what happens with Saul. It's not that he disagrees with the Ark of It's not that he hates God, but it's just kind of outside, out of mind. And he doesn't seek the presence of God. But the thing is, if we're not enthusiastic about the things of God, if we're not enthusiastic about the Gospel, then I don't think we really understand the Gospel. Or maybe we don't even believe the Gospel. Uh, several years ago, in the 1950s, there were these books that were common... And they were called Dick and Jane books. And these books were very, very simple books. Some of you may have read them as children. And uh, they just, the kind of the belief behind it was that you had to repeat words over and over and over again. So they tried to repeat every word like 35 times in each book. And so the books didn't really have any story. It would just be like a picture of a baby and it would say like, see, see, see baby baby funny, look at her, see. Like, it would just be, like, super simple. And, of course, kids didn't want to read books like this It had no plot, no story. So there was this article that was written, and it was called, Why Johnny Can't Read. And in this article, the author kind of laid out kind of this argument that these books are not sufficient, that children need more than this. That if you're going to get them interested in reading, you can't just keep repeating the same same words over and over again. So there was somebody who read this uh, this article named William Spaulding, and uh, he was the director of Hoden Muffin's education division. And uh, he decided he was gonna do something about this. So he went and approached his friend, whose name was Ted, and he said, I'm challenging you to write a book that first graders cannot put down. Now, Ted had written a couple of children's books before, not super successful, he was well known for um, doing cartoons for NBC and CBS and an oil company. Um, But he wanted to take up that challenge. And so he decided he was gonna write a book and try to make it as interesting as possible. And so he determined that he thought if he could find some words that rhyme together, then he could create a story that children would get excited about. And so the words that he came up with were cat and hat. And uh, Ted Giesel, also known as Dr. Seuss, went on to write his first book, or a first book in this line called The Cat in the Hat in 1957. And this changed children's literature forever for the better. No longer did you have these really simple Dick and Jane books that just repeat, repeated the same words over and over again. Now you had stories that had these wacky illustrations and a storyline and just were interesting that just drew children in. Uh, my son's almost three years old. One of his favorite books is Dr. Seuss' book, The Lorax. And it just kind of opened up a new world for children, and it started this movement where it was not just about r- rote memorization, now kind of the phonics movement took, took root. And some of us, when we think about the gospel, we think of it in kind of simplistic terms, and kind of like those Dick and Jane books. And if we think of it like that, we don't really understand the gospel because the gospel is incredibly profound and has the power to impact all of our lives and everything that we do. Because in the gospel, we see a few things. We see, first of all, we're more sinful than we could ever imagine. All of us, we are born sinners and we sin by nature and, and we're sinners by choice. And so we're, we're more broken than we could ever imagine. That's what the gospel tells us. Sometimes we put that in the back of our mind, but, you know, circumstances come to our life and we start to realize we're broken. We need someone in our life. We need Christ in our life. So we find out we're broken, but we're also loved. We're more loved than we could ever imagine. And then in the gospel, we see a God who left his throne room, came down to the earth, became a baby, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for us so that we might have one. And that's not the end of the story. He rose again from the grave. And and, in rising from the grave, He declared victory over sin and death and offered a way for us to have a relationship with God and also to live forever. And when we accept Him, His Holy Spirit comes inside of us and makes us new, gives us a new purpose, a new hope, a new reason for living. And so sometimes we think about the Gospel and we think of it as just a story on a page as just kind of that simple, basic framework. But the gospel is so much more than that. And if we think of it as being that simple framework, if we're not enthusiastic about the gospel, if it doesn't bring joy to our hearts, we don't really understand it or we don't really believe it. See, I think the devil would rather have us believe that the gospel is boring than to believe that it's untrue. See, if it's boring, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It's a, if it's boring, we don't have to consider it. We can just put it on a shelf somewhere, not think about it, and not allow it to transform our lives. Theologian Russell Moore puts it this way. He says, Jesus was often poorly received, but he never bored. When he preached, demons shrieked, crowds gasped, and services sometimes ended with attempted executions or other altar calls. The prophets before him... And the apostles after him were just like that too. They provoked shouts of happiness or warns of arrest, but they never prompted yawns. So if we understand and believe the gospel, it should transform us. It should make us enthusiastic about the things of God. I remember growing up. I grew up in a Christian home and uh, went to church all of my life. And I remember I got to kind of like my teenage years, and I had this kind of crisis of faith. And I had this crisis of faith because I had been going to church and, and and people just kind of seemed like they were just going through the motions. And that probably wasn't all accurate, but it seemed like people were enthusiastic about a lot of things other than their faith. It seemed like they just kind of were going through the motions, like they didn't actually believe what they said. And thanks to me to God I, I came across a pastor who I was under who just seemed like he actually believed what he said. It seemed like he was excited about the things of God, that it wasn't just a story on the page, that it actually meant something in real, everyday life. And that's what the Gospel is meant to do. If, If our relationship with God is only theoretical and not practical, there's a problem. If it only affects our minds but not our hearts, there's a problem. And so the Christian life is meant to be a life of joyful enthusiasm for the things of God and the lack of enthusiasm is a problem it could either mean a couple of things it could be maybe we're kind of gone astray we've neglected our relationship with god it could mean that we're engaging in sin and we're more focused on our sin than our savior or it could mean that we don't actually know christ we don't have a relationship with him so that's kind of the first response to god that we see in the apostle in saul who neglects the, the worship of god doesn't have enthusiasm for god but then we see that enthusiasm isn't enough. The next response is of enthusiasm without obedience. So David again comes to the throne. He calls for the ark to be brought to, to, um, from Carithariah to Jerusalem. And David and the people are ecstatic about what's happening here. Um, look at what it says in verse 8. It says, And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all of their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpeters. I mean, I, thinking about that environment that the chronicler is describing, I think of it kind of as like being at a Bills game. Like everybody's excited, everybody's cheering, everybody's like tailgating. You know, they're playing, you know, tambourines. They're blowing flutes. They're doing everything, going crazy, and they feel like they're on the right path. They're doing the right thing. Now they're going to see. pretty abruptly. There's this guy named Uzzah who's um, taking the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and the Ark of the Covenant starts to teeter and is about to fall over, and Uzzah goes out to reach for it, touches the Ark of the Covenant, and immediately he's, he dies. He's struck down. At that point, the party's over, and it says that David was angry at the Lord because of this. Didn't want to have anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant now. And you think about this story, and on the one hand, it seems kind of harsh, like he was just trying to keep the ark from falling from the ground. But as we look at the story closer, we look at it, and we see that this started with David was enthusiastic about the things of God, but he wasn't enthusiastic about obeying the things of God. See, back in Exodus chapter 25, it was prescribed that when the ark of the covenant was to be transported, it was going to be transported by Levites, who were of the priestly class, and that they were to transport the Ark of the Covenant on poles. That so they would, uh, have, there would be rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant, they'd be carrying it with poles, so as they wouldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant and incur such you know, a fate. But we see in this passage that David is taking shortcuts. He puts it on a cart, a new cart. This was something that the Philistines had done in the past. And so we see that he doesn't take seriously the commands of God. He's enthusiastic about the things of God. He wants to have a relationship with God, but he's not enthusiastic about following the law and about the truth. So we see that enthusiasm is not enough. Uh, When I was in college, I decided I was going to run a half marathon. And so I got this coach... And uh, he set me up with his training plan, and I followed it uh, pretty closely. And I was improving. I was getting a lot faster. I was able to run for a longer period of time. Um, I was running for just, like, hours at a time. You know, and it was a progression. So, you know, you kind of worked up the, the miles that you ran. And about a week before the race, I decided I'm going to do, like, a trial run. I didn't want to, you know, not be able to finish the race. So I would thought I'm just going to run the whole thing. See if I can actually do it. Um, so, week before, I think it was like a Saturday, the, week, the race was the next Saturday, I decided I'm going to run this half marathon. Um, and maybe I'll do a little bit extra just to prove that I can make it and finish the race. And I did it. I ran for like 13, I think it was like 13 and a half or 13.7 miles instead of 13.1. And I was confident, I was excited, I could do it, I could finish the race. So, few days go by, you know, a week goes by, and I rested, didn't really run a lot that, that week just to get ready for the race. And uh, I decided to do something bright the morning of the race. I decided to wear different sneakers that I'd never worn before for running. It wasn't the best idea. But I get to the race, and I'm so excited about it. I mean, I've been trading for months, and, like, the day is finally here, and I see crowds of people coming, and I'm um, going to the, the booth and getting your number. I was just so excited about running this race. And so I go to the starting line, and I got uh, my ear, earbuds in, and I'm just listening to worship music, and I'm on the top of the world. And the gun goes off, and I just, you know, I took off like a rocket. And I'm just like passing all of these people, I, I'll never forget, it was like a movie, I'm just like going past all these people who were runners, by the way. I'm not really a runner, I was an amateur, but I'm just flying past everybody, and I'm on the top of the world, and... You can see where this ends, right? (laughs) By about mile 9 or 10, I had to stop. I mean, I was incredibly enthusiastic. I was really excited about running. But in that enthusiasm, I forgot my training. I forgot that you just don't go sprinting right off the gate when you're trying to run 13.1 miles. And so my enthusiasm caused me to forget my training. Enthusiasm isn't enough. It was a good thing. That I was excited about it. But that enthusiasm should have been channeled into following the plan. Enthusiasm is never a substitute for obedience. Enthusiasm is never a substitute for obedience. We see throughout the scriptures that there are oftentimes people who were enthusiastic about the things of God, but not obedient. People like the Pharisees. I mean, nobody could argue that the Pharisees weren't enthusiastic. The Pharisees prayed a lot. They gave a lot lot of money to the temple. Uh, They fasted. Um, They were always doing religious things. They were incredibly enthusiastic, but they didn't do the things that God wanted them to do. They neglected their parents. They neglected the orphan. They neglected the widow. They neglected the true worship of God. But they were enthusiastic about what they were doing. But enthusiasm isn't a substitute for obedience. Enthusiasm isn't a substitute for knowing what God wants, and doing what God wants. So imagine that I'm at the church, and uh, my wife decides that she's going to do something really special for me. Um, And she's going to give me this special meal. Now, how many of you like lobster? Quite a few people like lobster. I'll be honest with you, I don't like lobster at all. And uh, in fact, lobster just kind of, the eyes and stuff, it just kind of freaks me out. And so, like, even if I'm eating with someone that's eating lobster, I have to, like, look away, like, this isn't happening. But that's great. Some people like lobster. So, imagine I'm at the church, and my wife decides she's going to give me a really special meal. So, she goes down to the Remington Tavern, and she buys me a lobster for $65, and brings it to me for lunch. Now, That's a really enthusiastic thing to do. It would be very generous to to buy such an exorbitant meal, but I'm not going to like that meal. That's going to be like, what is that thing that you've brought to me? Take that back to the ocean. I think the same thing is true with God. It's like we can be enthusiastic, but if we're enthusiastic about the wrong thing, God is like, well, you're doing this, and I asked you to do this. This is what's on my mind. Certainly this is a trap that people can fall into being enthusiastic about Christ but not obeying Him or even knowing Him. Um, Matthew 7, 23 says this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Enthusiastic. And do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not about just being enthusiastic. It's about enthusiasm and faith. Uh, Archibald Hart, a Christian psychologist, writes this, A constant state of adrenaline arousal, although physically damaging, is often experienced as pleasant excitement and stimulation. And it is this that makes it most dangerous, because we can come to think of the arousal state as normal, and to depend on the high it gives us to get anything accomplished. I believe there is a corresponding spiritual danger. Becoming dependent on adrenaline arousal for the good feelings of life can create an association between spirituality and high arousal. In other words, one doesn't feel spiritual unless one is being stimulated by adrenaline arousal. Many expressions of spirituality have become linked to adrenaline arousal, and this can be very harmful. A great many of the true saints of God have found their peak spiritual experiences in quietness and solitude. But many modern saints look for it only in exciting challenges or emotional so what that's saying in essence is sometimes we can kind of get focused on our enthusiasm, kind of being focused on the experience rather than being focused on God. And I've found in my life in ministry sometimes, you know, people who are really enthusiastic, sometimes even the, the most enthusiastic people outwardly are the least committed. Because enthusiasm isn't enough. It's not just about, you know, and having a feeling and experience with God. I mean, that's great. We should have joy in our life. We should have an enthusiasm for God. But that's not enough. It's about a relationship with Him. It's about knowing Him. It's about obeying Him and trusting Him. So, it's not enough simply to have an emotional experience to be enthusiastic. Finally, finally, Approach that we see to faith, approach to God, is enthusiasm and, and truth, and that's what we should be striving for. Um, again, we see in this passage, after this happened, after Uzzah is put to death, David doesn't want to have anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant. He's angry at God, and he says, how can God's Ark dwell among us? And so he sends the Ark of the Covenant to a man by the name of Obed-Edom uh, from uh, He says he was a Gittite, probably from Gath, probably a Philistine. And when he does that, he's probably thinking to himself, I'm going to get this Ark of the Covenant as far away from me as possible. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. I don't want anybody else to end up dead. So he sends it to him there, and then to his surprise, he was most likely surprised by what happened, the house of Obed-Edom just, you know, was flourishing. God blessed everything that happened in the house of Obed-Edom. And in this David learns an important lesson that it's worthwhile to seek God's presence but that God must be sought on his own terms. He's the one who sets the rules of engagement and he must be uh, he must uh, be approached with a sense of reverence and holiness. And we see this changes and we see this changes in the next few chapters in the way that David relates to God and relates to the Ark of the Covenant, and he brings God and the Ark of the Covenant back afterwards. Now we think about this, and the the circumstances and the times change. We're not living in the same era that they were living in, um, and we don't have to worry about um, following the ceremonial laws like they did, and dropping dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. We live in a different world. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. And yet what God requires of His people remains the same. John 4, 23 and 24, uh, Jesus says this. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. We're to worship Him in the spirit of God and enthusiasm, joyful enthusiasm and (coughs) in truth. Put another way, Jesus said this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." He co- calls us to worship him with all that we are. To have a godly enthusiasm, but to put that enthusiasm in the right direction. To obeying and follow him after the Lord. And I think this passage provides us with an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is that, again, we're living in a different era. We don't have to worry about the Ark of the Covenant. We have God's presence that lives inside us. If, we, if we're believers in Christ, God's presence lives inside of us. And so we don't have to worry about these ceremonial laws in that sense. and There's an encouragement that we have access to the Father that, that the Israelites didn't have. We can have an even closer relationship, much closer than they have. We can call on Him any time, night, or day. So that's an encouragement, but there's also a warning. And that warning is that we don't trifle with God. That we approach him on his own terms, that we approach him with reverence and holiness, that we don't presume upon the grace of God. 1 Peter 1, uh, 14 and 19, New Testament passage says this As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also need must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you could call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the New Testament, there's a story that's actually quite similar to the story that we just read. Uh, It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, this is a story in the book of Acts. It's in the early church, this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira decided they're going to sell a piece of property that they have. And uh, they're under no compulsion to do so. They didn't have to do this. They weren't commanded to do this. But they decided they were going to sell this piece of land and then they were going to give all of the proceeds uh, to the church. And so they did that. They sold all the property and they said, here it is, here's the proceeds. But the thing was, they didn't keep, they didn't send all of the proceeds, they only sent some of them. Now, again, they didn't have to. They could have just been forthright and said, oh, here's what we want to give. But They said they were giving everything, but they were only giving something. And so they were lying to the Spirit of God, lying to the early church. And they go on, and the story ends in both of, both of their deaths. And, and the point is the same. We must approach God on His terms. But not only should we be enthusiastic, but we need to also be so there's a warning here in this passage that we need to approach God on his terms, not our terms. We need both enthusiasm and truth. Enthusiasm and obedience. John Orrberg puts it this way. He says, some churches specialize in generating emotion. The platform people are experts in moving worshipers to laughter or tears. Attenders gradually learn to evaluate the service in terms of the emotion they feel. In time, however, the law of diminishing returns that Prayers are offered in highly emotive style and bathed in background music. Stories have to get more dramatic, songs more sentimental, preaching more histrionic to keep people having intense emotional experiences. Such worship is often shallow, sometimes artificial, and rarely reflective. Little attention is given to worshiping with the mind. It produces people who have little depth or rootedness. They may develop a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. They become worship junkies searching for whichever church can supply the best rush. He says this is a scarecrow worship. It would be better if only it had a brain. On the other hand, some churches, he says, focus keenly on cognitive correctness. They recite great creeds to distribute reams of exegetical information, craft careful prayers ahead of time, and yet their heart and spirit are not seized with wonder and passion that characterize those in Scripture who must fall on their faces when they encounter the living God. No one is ever so moved that she actually moves. This is tragic because, as Dallard Willard writes, to handle the things of God without worship is always to falsify them. Those who attend such services may be competent to spot theological error, but the unspoken truth is they're also a little bored. Their worship is dry. It does not connect with their deepest hurts and desires. Rarely, rarely does it generate awe or healing, and never raucous joy. This is 10-man worship, if it only had a heart. We need both. We need enthusiasm. We need truth. We need enthusiasm. We need obedience. So a couple questions for us to think about. Number one, are we enthusiastic about the things of like God? And again, there's a number of reasons why, if you answer that question no, why that may be. Maybe we just kind of grow complacent. We've been focusing on the cares of this world and things that are happening in our so we're not enthusiastic about the things of God because we just don't devote time to it. So maybe we need to start that practice of spending time with Him. Maybe there's sin in our life that's kind of a habitual thing that's leading us astray. That we want to be focused on the things of God. We want to have an enthusiasm for God. Maybe we feel guilt because we're engaging in such and such activity. Maybe it's an opportunity to repent. God, I want to be enthusiastic about the things that bring honor to you. I want to be enthusiastic about my relationship. Or maybe, maybe you don't know him. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe today would be the day where you turn from the direction you're going and say, God, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness that was brought on the cross. I need your power to change me give me a new hope. I need a relationship with you. Maybe we're in that place where feel that enthusiasm today. Maybe we are enthusiastic, but maybe that enthusiasm isn't kind of tethered to truth or obedience. And again, enthusiasm is never a substitute for obedience. I think that's sometimes where we find ourselves as believers. Like David, it's not that we have bad intentions. Maybe we're even trying to do the right thing. We're trying to honor God, But we make a fundamental mistake. What we do is we say, instead of saying, what we say is, God, or we say, what do I have to give God? We look at our lives and say, what do I have to give God? Rather than asking God, God, what would you desire for me? And there's a big difference there. The one is, all right, I've got this, and this is what I'm willing to part with. The other says, God, everything that I have is yours. Whatever you want, just tell me. Take what you want. There's a difference there. And sometimes we can be enthusiastic about God, but we're kind of still focused on ourselves. And we're not asking God, God, what do you want for me? We're asking God, or we're asking, what should I give to God? So as we close today, let's ask God the question, what do you desire for me? How can my love and enthusiasm for me, or for for you, be expressed and obedient? God, what would you have? Everything that I have is yours. What do you want? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your presence as believers dwells inside us. That we have access to a relationship with you anytime, night, and day. Lord, help us to approach you with reverence and holiness, opening up our hearts to you saying, God, everything that we have is yours. What would you have us do? What would you have us do? Lord, I pray for anybody here who maybe is living in sin, walking apart from you, or maybe who's never known you, today would be the day that they turn and embrace you, my faith In Christ's name.